Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to this gathering of God's people here at Charlotte Chapel. Um, if you're regularly here with us, let me welcome you again. If this is your first time with us, can I extend an extra warm welcome to you? Well, not only do we welcome you, but God himself welcomes you here to hear his gospel uh, and enjoy him. Let me start by reading God's word. Romans chapter 3 says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So as we come before God this evening, we must recognize that each of us has sinned and fallen short of his glory. But equally, we must remember that in Christ Jesus, God has done everything necessary to save us. And it is only he who can rescue us from our sins. So let's stand and sing, you alone can rescue. Do please stand.
You.
members, Thomas Dubley is going to come read God's word for us. So, Thomas. So the readings will be from 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting from verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you, king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them, for you show kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These these they are unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul's king because he turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, and there he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone da- on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle, sacrificed the Lord your God, but we, were totally, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of the rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. 
Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's commands in your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the, sorry, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is God's word. Thanks, Tom. Now, I wonder what you imagine God's posture is towards you when you come to him. Maybe he sees you and he crosses his arms and he thinks, not you again. What is it this time? You know, this, this better be good. Or maybe you imagine that actually his back is turned. He just doesn't care. He's not listening. Well, Jesus told us what God's posture towards us really is. It is that open, open-armed welcome of a father who loves his child and loves to hear from them. So let's come to God in prayer, to our father who loves to hear us. Lord our God, your glory, the beauty and goodness of your glory is our standard. You call every human being to live as you created us, to be mirrors which reflect your glory. But instead of living For your glory, we have lived for our own. We have disobeyed you in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. We have not loved you with our whole hearts and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Without your spirit living in us, there is no good in us. And you are the good and righteous judge of all who would be perfectly just to punish us. But who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives transgressions? Indeed, your word tells us that you delight in showing mercy to sinners. Thank you, Father, that you sent your eternal Son to take on human flesh, that in his life and death and resurrection, we find mercy and grace if we repent and trust in him. Thank you that you sent your spirit into our hearts to give us new life, and new eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Please help us to keep in step with the Spirit and walk in newness of life 
with him. We praise you for you are a good God and always kind. For your glory's sake. Amen. Let's stand and bring glory to Christ who loves us. Do stand.
one of the pastors here. It's my joy to bring God's word to us. So why don't we turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. That's the passage we're going to work through uh, shortly. And uh, as we're turning there, uh, let me lead us in prayer. We need God's help to understand what he's saying to us tonight. Uh, I do as much as you do. So let's uh, pray together. In James 1, uh, Lord, we do see it in black and white that the instruction not to merely listen to your word and so deceive ourselves, but to do what it says. And even in that warning, Lord, we're grateful. For that warning, we're grateful. And in that warning, we see our proneness to not listen, to not pay attention, even to the point of self-deception. We lie to ourselves and think that we are paying attention. Forgive us for that and help us take care how we hear just now. And not only to hear, but to do. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, let me put this out there just from the off. I wonder, do we care enough as children of God about obedience? Do we care enough about obeying the commands of our God and our King? Um, I worry that we don't care enough. What about you? How much do you care about obeying God's commands? How much does it pain you whenever, by conviction of the Spirit, you realize that you have broken them? Uh, for me, personally speaking, and perhaps for you, the answer is, well, I, I don't care enough, stupidly. I'm concerned about my own nonchalance behind my pursuit of holiness. I'm concerned about the deliberacy behind certain sins, the ones I enjoy the most or the ones that wrongly are classified in my own head as oh, not that bad, the get away with sins. And what about you? I think I'm very glad for a passage like this. I'm grateful of the opportunity to study it this week because I think it's really helped expose disobedience in me, and I've prayed it will expose yours. It's helped me to see what lies beneath the surface, behind the acts of disobedience, to see what's going on in the heart, and I've prayed it would help you in the same way. And it's helped me see afresh that obedience really ought to accompany a true confession of the gospel. Not in a way that means we're trying to kind of earn our way into God's presence. We're already accepted but merely as a joyous expression empowered by grace of the life that we've been saved into. So uh, let's look at it together. I've got two points that I'd like us to work through. And the first is this, the rejection of God's word leads to disobedience. That's what we find in chapter 15, verses 1 uh, to 11. Okay, in verses 1 to 9, we see that uh, uh, Saul, the king of Israel, disobeyed the word of God. He didn't miss that word. Verse 1, we find Samuel emphasizing the need to listen, to hear, to pay attention. 
In fact, that same word, uh, the root word meaning to listen or to hear is repeated eight times throughout the passage, though it's hard to discern in the English translations, but it's definitely there. And Samuel, the prophet, is pressing home the reason for this. Even in verse 1, these aren't your people, Saul. These are God's people. So do think, doing things rightly is for their benefit as well. The king's obedience to God's word is vitally connected to their own obedience. And that's what's been impressed on him. That's how leadership works. As the king goes, so go the people. So Samuel has clearly got uh, Saul's attention here. Um, he, so Saul did not miss the word of God, and it wasn't unclear either, was it? In verses 2 and 3, Samuel, God's prophet, delivers God's very clear word. And the instructions are unambiguous. And to modern day readers, I expect distressing. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and just totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now to ears in the 21st century, this sounds like ethnic cleansing. The evil that is ethnic cleansing. But it's not that. You see, the Amalekites are being put to death, not because of their race, but because of their sin. Verse 2 says this is judgment. It's not warfare for political sake. And God, the just, is perfectly right to judge the wicked whenever he chooses to do so. It is his prerogative. And in this particular instance, justice is meted out on the Amalekites for historic sins. And the text makes reference to exactly what point in history that is. They were guilty of attacking the defenseless, weary, um, emaciated stragglers, the aged, the women, the children in the tail of Israel's convoy as it's made its way from slavery in Egypt to freedom and worship at Sinai. Now God withheld his judgment back then, but he is not an unjust God. He does not let sin slide. That is not consistent with his character. Patience is. He gave the Amalekites 300 years to consider their ways and to give them time to repent, but they didn't. History shows, biblical history even shows that they did not change. Wickedness um, is a perfectly apt description of these people. And in this instance, God chose not to wait until the final day of judgment to come to exercise his just judgment. He enacted it in the present moment back then through Saul. Uh, through Saul. Now, I wonder if you find an explanation of, like, of that alarming or comforting. Uh, I guess that depends on whether you believe in Jesus or not, ultimately. I mean, if you believe in Jesus, uh, even God's justice acted out in judgment is a comfort to us. Uh, God notices how his people are mistreated, hated, and persecuted. I guess if you've ever felt anger at someone, uh, how someone has maybe mistreated someone that you really love, 
you'll understand at least to some extent how God feels when that happens. God notices, but God also hears the cry of his children when they pray to him in the midst of their difficulty and trial. And God promises justice that is entirely in keeping with his character. And it is definitely not just an Old Testament idea. In Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs find comfort in the prospect of God's judgment on the wicked. Which teaches us that from beginning to end, the greatness of the biblical gospel is not just in the salvation of sinners, but actually on judgment of the wicked. There are two sides of the same coin. So I guess for people like us who believe, it's not something that we necessarily should wince at. I mean, we definitely shouldn't wince at it. It actually is good for God to do what is right. And there is comfort in that. But I guess if you don't believe in Jesus, then it will be alarming. Because this passage says God takes sin very, very seriously. He actually does judge sinners. Because this is a passage that is a picture of God's intent actually against all who refuse to repent of their sin and believe in him. And nothing, not even death, can help people to slip through that judgment. As Acts 17.31 tells us, that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man, the judge that he has appointed. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 5, that's him. So the answer is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's hard text. Think it through. Mull it over. Feel free to ask questions about it later. But in summary, in verses 1 to 3, Saul has heard the word of the Lord. He didn't miss it. It was not unclear. The question that's posed in this whole passage is, what does he actually do with that word? Does he hear it and obey it? Well, in verses 4 to 9, you've got to say partially. We find Saul partially obeying God's word. Verses 4 to 8 tells us of the... The, the obedience aspect of it. He attacks the Amalekites and does his thing. Verse 9 tells us of Saul's disobedience. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These, uh, these they were totally, these were, sorry, these they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, yeah, they, they totally destroyed that. So he spared Agag, and he let the army convince him to keep some tasty-looking barbecue, or else to keep them for some profit for themselves. Later, does he dress up as a, a sacrifice? I think so. But essentially, at first, because of the, the, the desires in their hearts, these animals were just too lip-smackingly good to keep, not to keep for profit or to eat some kind of reward, some kind of plunder. So Saul was partially disobedient, but partial disobedience, friends, is still disobedience. And it arouses the Lord's anger. That's why we see in verses 10 and 11, we see that Saul's disobedience grieved God. Look with me, verse 10 and 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret 
that I have made Saul king. Now, there's another tricky thing to read. What does that mean? Well, God is not repenting of doing something wrong or wishing that he had not chosen Saul. He is simply expressing his sorrow. Just because God has chosen to do something and with good purpose doesn't mean that he isn't grieved when sin is committed. His holiness actually demands that, and we shouldn't be unsettled by expressions of God's grief or emotion that we read in Scripture. It doesn't make him emotionally unstable. There is no one like him. He is perfectly settled in his emotional disposition. Even in regard to his anger, it is described as flaring up in Scripture, but it's never hot-headed or flying off the handle. How can we accuse God of such impropriety, even as anger is righteous, pure, holy? Now, he is genuinely grieved by sin, by disobedience. And the Lord knows what's at the root of it. Hannah said so in chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Verse 11 says, I regret that I've made Saul king because, and here's what the Lord knows, he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. So the rejection of God and his word is the root cause of Saul's disobedience. The king whose obedience to God's word was vitally connected to the people's ongoing obedience, remember, has defied God, rebelled against his authority, and in essence thought that he was in charge. In essence thought, hey, I can pick and choose which of these commands to obey. I've done like 75% of them. And sure, we can do a sacrifice with some of these and enjoy a bit of the plunder ourselves. And we'll find out a little bit more about that in a sec, but I guess it's worth pausing to ask the question in application. Do we ever do this? Do we ever find ourselves defying God's authority and disobeying God's commands? In the things that he has clearly instructed in unmissable terms in his word, do we think lightly of those things? Do we pick and choose which of the commands of scripture that the Lord actually wants us to obey? I do. It's really bad. Are there areas of our lives where the rule of God just does not quite extend because, you know, we're doing a Gandalf, you shall not pass. It grieves me when I face up to the fact that I grieve God in this way by disobeying his word. I know that rejection of his word and his authority leads to disobedience. That's what makes sin not an oops or a mishap, but willful, a desirous thing. And I've been so convicted by this passage that I've prayed that I'd be more grieved or as grieved over my sin as he is. And that it would do to me even what it did to the prophet Samuel in chapter 11, the second half of chapter 11. See what it says? Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. We should care enough about our sin to be grieved at least as half as much as that. 
And all of this to say, you know, obedience is not some dispensable act of the Christian life. In fact, it is expected. Believing the gospel involves submitting to Jesus as Lord. And Jesus himself said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Again, in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, blessed, are they, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Even the Apostle Paul bookending the book of Romans by saying we believers have been called to what he describes as the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. But our disobedience highlights a problem and more than just indwelling sin. I mean, sometimes we ignore the Bible's teaching on obedience. We treat grace like a license to sin instead of a motivation for obedience. We think way too lightly of sin. We mistakenly think that, you know, we're on a balancing act here and my, my good things will, my obedience will offset the disobedience and so on. Or we do this so easily because we just completely underestimate God's holiness. There are many, many reasons why we might do this. But hear the word of the Lord today, brothers and sisters, from James 1. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, ourselves. Do what it says. I think we need these reminders. Because like Saul, we're prone to the same disobedience. And if rejection of God's word is what leads to disobedience, then what leads to the rejection of God's word in the first place? Well, I think in the rest of this passage, we see deeper sins. If I can call it that. Deeper sins lie behind the rejection of God's word. And this is point two. Deeper sins lie behind the rejection of God's words. In verses 12 through to 23, even on through to 31, it tells us that basically Samuel dissects Saul's rejection of the word of God, right? Samuel can see it. Uh, Samuel can't see it. In verse 13, he greets, sorry, Saul. I always do this. Saul begins with the same word. Can't wait till we get to David. It'll be so much easier. Saul can't see it. In verse 13, he greets Samuel like everything's fine. Hey, Sammy, my man, look at what we did. He's so happy. It's like he just doesn't see it, oblivious to it, as we often are. And he needs someone to point it out to him, what he's done wrong, as we often do. And Samuel pulls out in this passage, he basically pulls Saul's heart out, figuratively speaking, and points to it and says, take a good, long, hard look at this and let's figure out what in here is making you disobey the word of God that you have so clearly heard. And what do we see in this heart? Well, rebellion. Where's the evidence? I guess it's there in Saul's ingratitude. I mean, his actions display that he's truly not grasped what God has given him. That's what Samuel highlights in verses 17 and 18. Listen, uh, Saul, has not the Lord lifted you up from obscurity, essentially? He's made you what you are. He's given you everything that you have. His, that's called grace, right? And his grace should have been a motivation for obeying his commands, but you've not only scorned his good gifts, you've basically decided that you can defy his authority. You can rebel against his authority and do whatever you think is right. 
That's part of the evidence of his rebellion. But it's also evident in Saul's fear of man. When you dig into the passage, you see that he's, Saul basically claims that he was afraid of what his army would say or do if he commanded them to uh, kill all the animals that could have been sold for profit or eaten for their enjoyment as plunder. Remember, plunder was an issue last time. Well, the influence of others can lead us into rebellion against God. When we worry more of what people will think of us, more than we do about what God thinks of us, it will make us more subject to them and their influence than it does God's and his. And when you prefer theirs to his, that's rebellion because ultimately you're turning from his authority and following theirs. You regard them in that way as more important than God. And that's why Samuel likens rebellion in verse 3 to this sin of divination. Rebellion is like the sin of divination, he says. Now, divination is basically when you look to the environment for guidance to know what to do. It's looking elsewhere for what you should be seeking in the word of God. And ultimately, the evidence, though, of Saul's rebellion is just in his unwillingness, which verse 9 told us about. Unwillingness to do what God's command, what God commands is quite simply rebellion. The second thing that we're told about in here, uh, the deeper sin that underlies Saul's disobedience is arrogance. Arrogance. Where's the evidence for that? Well, while the Lord and Samuel were grieving over Saul's rejection of the word of God, Saul's celebrating. In fact, verse 12 He's making a monument to himself. Samuel can't find him at first. Oh, he's away to Gilgal uh, to, to basically build a wee monument. And when Samuel arrives, he boasts in his obedience. Verse 13, I have carried out all the Lord's instructions, he says. Oh, really, says Samuel. What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? Can you imagine that moment? Have you ever had a moment like that? Where, you know, you greet a loved one one moment and then the next you're practically winded by the single question of the thing. All the husbands are saying, no, it never happens to me, not once. But in an instant, the words, uh-oh, pop into your head. You know you've done something wrong. And Saul knows that arrogance blinds us to those things. See how self, how we can be so self-deceived in our disobedience. And even when confronted by Samuel, Saul doesn't even have the humility to admit his sin, does he? He claims to have kept the best of the animals to be devoted to God, you know, sacrificed to the Lord. But Samuel isn't buying any of it. Look with me, verse 23, this is crucial. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? It's not saying that God doesn't delight in those things. We've already seen from 1 Samuel that he does. But look, as much as are the three words that are very important in there. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. How does this apply to us? Well, reading your Bible, praying, going to church to sing and to listen to God's word and be with God's people. It's no substitute for an obedient life. 
It's not something that we can just do and then think that the rest of the week is for ourselves. That's, well, it's sinful. External devotion doesn't mean that we are free of the need for, well, internal, ongoing submission to the lordship of our God and our King. And that's why in verse 23 we see that rebellion is not just like the sin of divination, but arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. That's very strong from Samuel. Idolatry. How is arrogant disobedience like the sin of idolatry? Because when you are rejecting God and his word, you are simply living like those who worship other gods. And what Samuel has helped Saul to see and helped us to see by reading it is that deeper sins lie behind Saul's disobedience. And the same is true for us. It is the over, out of the overflow of the heart that we do the things that we do and say the things that we say and desire the things that we desire. And commonly, underlying the disobedience that we see in so many different aspects of our lives, it's the same. It's rebellion. It's arrogance. It's pride. It's dethroning God's and taking his place ourselves. Now, how does Saul respond to Samuel's dissection? I guess in the same way that we often do when confronted by our sinfulness, denial. But I did do it. I did carry out the Lord's instruction, he said. Blame shifting. They made me do it. It was because of them. Or downplaying. It's not that bad. We did it for God. But as you would expect of the God, uh, whose existence, as we see in chapter 2, verse 3, shuts the mouths of the arrogance. And who in chapter 2, verse 30 of this book said that he promises to honor those who honor him and disdain those who despise him? As you would expect, there are consequences. And verses 24 to 31 tell us that God disciplines those who reject his word. Now, specifically in Saul's case, Saul's kingdom is torn from him. You see that in verses 23 and verse 26. It's repeated. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now in that moment, something hits Saul. And Saul confesses his sin and pleads forgiveness. It is very hard, if you ask me, to discern whether or not it's genuine because his concern seems to be more for how it looks in front of his army than how he's viewed before God. Even Samuel's accession towards the end of the passage, it's, it's just for me, it's just not particularly clear. But as regards to the main aspect of it, the kingship of Saul himself, Samuel's basic reply is, it's done. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Now, please remember, this is not Saul's salvation that's at stake, but it's his reign. And the Lord is disciplining him. But Saul's kingdom is taken from him and given to a better king. 
And here we see as Samuel turns to leave, we get this remarkable parable of the entire situation. Um, as you know, Samuel turns to leave, you've got Saul saying, no, Samuel, no, wait, wait, wait. And you can picture tall, strong Saul with those long arms reaching out, grabbing Samuel's robe. Maybe it was one of the ones that was made by his mum year by year. And it tears. And there he stands with a corner of Samuel's robe in his hands. Mouth open, probably, in surprise. And Samuel, with a mic drop moment in verse 28, says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. The discipline of Saul for his arrogant disobedience is a humbling. And truly we see what Hannah prayed again. He humbles and he exalts. And verse 29 tells us that God, who is the glory of Israel, is not, he's not, he's not going to change his mind about what he says he will do. Not like fickle Saul, who would pick and choose. God is very clearly determined in his mind what he will and will not do. So no puppy dog eyes will do it. No amount of begging will keep that crown on Saul's head. And to prove it, Samuel takes the king's responsibility, even at that moment, upon himself and does the will of God. He puts Agag to death there. But who is this king that's better than Saul? Well, it's David, and we'll meet him next week. But even he, like Saul, will be a let-down king leaving us wondering who is going to be sufficient for this role as king over God's people, who could possibly not only listen to the word of God, but perfectly obey it to the letter? Well, it's Jesus, obviously. You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? It's Jesus. Jesus, whose life was marked by impeccable obedience, in John chapter 14, verse 31, speaking of the coming Holy Spirit, Jesus says, He comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Even in the face of severe temptation, He obeyed His Father's will perfectly. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us of this, that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In other words, he was perfectly obedient. And his obedience was such that it took him all the way to his death. He died for his people on that cross all those years ago in humility before God. And we reap the greatest benefit of all because he heard the Father's word and was obedient unto death, as Romans 5.19 says it beautifully. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. It's beautiful. 
and we, the people, the subjects of his kingdom, rejoice that we reap all the blessings of his obedience to the word of God. And as the king goes, so go the people. Listen to his word. By his grace, with the Holy Spirit's help, do what it says. If we love him, we will keep his commands. We will never do that perfectly. We will still sin multiple times daily. But we need not fear his rejection, however, if by faith we follow him. We may expect his discipline, but if we're his, we're his. By contrition and spirit-enabled, grace-empowered endeavor, endeavor, obedience, obedience to him will actually be our joy. I pray it will be for all of us. If we were, oh, I'm saying we, I'm going to say I here, but I'm saying it so as to not offend anyone here, but really I mean we, but I'm not going to tell you that. If I obeyed half as much as what I know concerning the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think this church family would be much more loving, much more gracious, much more effective in witnessing. We would see more people come to faith if we obey him, walk in his ways, hearing, doing by his grace and giving him glory. Would you join me in praying about this? Let's pray. Please take a few seconds just to pray personally, your own prayers of response, and then I'll lead us in a wee sec. Our Father, as we consider our, the ways in which we rebel against your authority and defy your words, we are so grateful for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so pleased to rest in him and find in him an appeal and an advocate 
For his is the blood shed for us. His is the blood that covers over every sin, every disobedient act. And we thank you that even as we pray that you would help us to walk in your ways in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, in obedience, that we can pray knowing that you, by your spirit, help us. Father, your commands, as the book of 1 John tells us, are not burdensome. But if we love you, we will be happy to walk in your ways, pleased to obey. Oh, Father, incline our hearts to you, to grow in love and affection for you and your word, and to desire more and more to walk in it. Father, help us not to merely listen to your word and so deceive ourselves, but do what it says. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our closing song is a song which reminds us of the beauty of the gospel, that our hope is only found in Christ. But the last verse reminds us or gives expression to the fact that it's our desire to walk in his way. So let's sing it with glad hearts. Let's stand together.
morning's announcement. Uh, next Sunday morning service is going to be a 10.30 start, not 10 o'clock. 10.30 start, just in case you missed it this morning. And we close with these words from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all those people said.